Hello and welcome to the Steps to Investing podcast, helping aspiring investors get to grips with the world of finance and investing. On today's programme, our tax year-end special, we talk tax breaks with multi-award-winning journalist Faith Archer. And in a double bill, we also chat to Cherry Reynard, another multi-award-winning journalist, about unusual ideas for your individual savings account or ISA. Hello, I'm Simon Longfellow. And I'm Marcus De Silva. And welcome along to this week's podcast. Marcus, what has caught your eye in the news this week? Well, yeah, a few things really. I think I think what I've been looking at this week is some optimistic stories. There's been a couple. The first was in the FT, and this report was talking about the deal making that we've been seeing around the world, mergers and acquisitions, MA as it's commonly called. And this quarter alone, we've seen $1.3 trillion in deals done, which is quite a staggering number. In fact, it's the highest quarterly M&A number since 1980. So pretty good. Chiefs are obviously feeling quite confident. It's it's the, the ultimate sign of confidence, really. And are looking for other assets or businesses to strategically bolt onto their own. And this is vastly different from a year ago when it was all just and survival and conserving cash, really, because of the uncertainty of the pandemic. Most of this deal-making is going on in the US. They've had some very generous stimulus there, particularly from the Fed has worked its way into supporting some of the lower-rated bonds in the, in the corporate market, junk bonds, as they sometimes call them, which is providing cheap money, really, to fuel these acquisitions. A quarter of the deals, though, was thanks to this thing that we've mentioned before, SPACs, special purpose acquisition companies. And these are these empty shell businesses that are set up, they go out, they raise money, and then they float on the stock market with the idea that in a certain amount of time, they will have to purchase something private. That through that purchase, that private company is then merged with a public one. So effectively, it becomes public. Effectively, it floats on the stock market. But rather than all of this onerous, horrible road shows that, that go with IPOs and, and, the, and the difficult process and all the legal work and everything that's, that's associated, this is a kind of quicker, fast track route to getting yourself licked, listed on the stock market. And it's it's been an interesting one. One of the deals that we've seen this quarter was one that you should know. It's online broker eToro. Um, which is an Israeli company that has become quite large. In fact, it was bought for $10 billion, which is pretty good, through a SPAC that was set up by quite an interesting character, a banking tycoon called Betsy Cohen. She has already launched nine SPACs. She's really the kind of chief queen of the SPAC boom uh, out of New York. So she's pretty impressive. Second bit of optimism, well, I'll tell you about that in markets. First of all, we'll go to Simon and see what you've been looking at. Uh, Well, following my book review last week, I finished the one we were talking about called Boom and Bust uh, by two chaps, William Quinn and John Turner. And uh, I've really got into my investment uh, reading lately, so I've started another one. Uh, And this only came out uh, very recently called Investing for Growth. Now, that's written by a fund manager, a chap called... Terry Smith, and you may well know his funds uh, under the name Fundsmith. Um, Now, obviously, a full review will follow on the blog in due course, but I have to tell you, it is a bit of a cracker. He writes really, really well. 
cover some very, very salient uh, points. For example, uh, in the opening paragraphs, chapters, he's talking about the problems with exchange-traded funds that don't own the thing they're supposed to be tracking. Now, these are known as synthetic ETFs, and he outlines all kinds of problems with them, some of which we'll come on to, as I say, when I review it formally. He's also very big on share buybacks, and this is where companies buy their own shares, but often, he says, with no idea why uh, in many cases. So uh, more on that in due course on the blog um, and uh, you know, look forward to, to getting into it in a bit more detail. We were, it's interesting, this, wasn't it, Simon? Because we were sort of talking, you can have two exceptional fund managers, but usually the one that is, is much more successful broadly, manages to grow their funds are the ones who are great communicators. And Terry Smith falls into that category, doesn't he? Yeah, absolutely. No, there's no doubt about it. He writes very well, he presents very well, and uh, you know, he makes some very persuasive um, arguments. Okay, well, in a moment, um, tax breaks and how to make sure you're taking advantage of them and some off-the-wall ideas for putting in your ISA. But first, the news. Let's start by looking at what's been happening in the main markets over the last week, Marcus. Well, the second bit of news maybe to feel optimistic about was hearing from President Joe Biden in Pittsburgh announcing that he's got another whopping spending package that he intends to get through Congress in what is seen as a pretty bold move, really. Yes, Biden has announced a $2 trillion infrastructure spending package that sees new rail roads, new rails as well, green initiatives, more services for the elderly, broadband infrastructure, all sorts of stuff set for significant investment. Biden said corporate taxes would pay for it, which means he swerved for the moment higher income taxes for the wealthy, which was a campaign promise. So it'll be interesting to see where he goes with that. And of course, Republicans and business leaders are feeling a bit peeved at this and will almost certainly resist it. Mitch McConnell, the minority leader, said it was like a Trojan horse and that higher taxes curled up inside this proposal would kill jobs in the future. Markets are weighing the boost from this spending versus what the economists might refer to as the drag from the taxes that it will create. It seems for the moment they think it's a good thing that higher taxes could actually put a lid on some of that scary inflation that we don't want. Remember, we want a bit of inflation, but not too much of it. And also help stabilise these sell-offs that we've seen in some of the longer dated bonds in the market. Again, would be under, you know, that is normal during a period of economic recovery, but you don't want it to be too severe. So markets are up marginally. The bulls, what's, what's slightly restraining the bulls is juddering vaccine rollouts really they're not going great there's some arguments over vaccine nationalism and of course there's rising cases in Europe and we've seen fresh lockdowns in France and I think that you know we've there's a lot of optimism in the markets the big risk at the moment is if this whack-a-mole fails with corona containment and then it'll be back to tech stocks and the safer parts of the market but for the moment when you look at how investors are positioned for the next quarter there's optimism. It's on growth. It's on inflation, as we've spoken about many times before. Money is flowing into the more economically sensitive value names that have been popular for like over a decade. So we're seeing classic value sectors such as banks and energy rising still. The price of longer data bonds still falling. And fund manager expectations as well. I saw a chart today 
looking at volatility expectations to how much the market is going to swing wildly. And it's pretty mute. It's saying what fund managers are saying is that they don't expect to see a snapback in the trade back towards the safer stuff anytime soon. All in all, the S&P 500 is up 95 points to 3,973. The FTSE 100 is up 84 points to 6,765. The stock 600 is up 7 points to 432. And the Nikkei 225 is up 342 points to 29,389. Simon, what have you got for us? Well, I'm going to start by following up on the news we reported last week that the fast food delivery company Deliveroo, it was suffering from a lack of interest in its stock market listing from fund managers like Aberdeen Standard and Eviva. Well, the company flotation has now taken place and actually they've failed to ignite interest from any kind of uh, investor, including ordinary retail investors like ourselves. The initial public offering, or IPO as it's called in the jargon, was on Wednesday of this week, and shares in Deliveroo fell 26% on the day, and in fact they were down 30% just after trading started. That wiped $2 billion off the valuation of the company. The IPO price was £390, but shares closed yesterday at 287. In related news, uh, DoorDash, the US food delivery app, has accused its partner Olo of fraud. It says that Olo used the stolen money to strengthen the appearance of its revenues before it went public in an IPO. Now, Olo, if you don't know it, it's a software. It's used by restaurants to manage food delivery apps like DoorDash and Uber Eats and the likes. Now, in contrast to the Deliveroo listing this week, Olo listed on the New York Stock Exchange back in March. Its share price went up 44% on the day of listing, although, to be fair, it has since fallen back some 15%. Now, Olo is accused of charging DoorDash a higher price than rivals, which amounts to a breach of contract, should I say, according to DoorDash. And finally, Lloyds of London, the insurance underwriter, says its losses from the pandemic will amount to around £6 billion. It says that claims for business interruption, events, cancellation and the like, that's all going to hit them hard and it's going to take them to their worst losses for three years. Full results were disclosed on Wednesday of this week and a profit of £2.5 in 2019 swung to a £900 million loss last year. But contributing to the loss was also a downturn in custom from EU markets following the UK's exit from the block. Okay, well, that's the news for this week uh, in uh, in a few words. Let's move on now to our double header interview and let's start with tax breaks. Now, of course, many of you will know that a tax year runs from April 6th all the way round to April 5th. And within a year, you have tax allowances. So these are thresholds, these are limits that you have for certain pots of income beyond which you then have to start paying tax, but below which you don't. So knowing about all these different allowances is quite useful to make sure that you're making the most of those allowances and therefore 
saving tax where you don't need to be paying it. So to round all of these up at tax year end, we've got back onto the pod our award-winning journalist from The Times, Dave Telegraph, and of course, her own blog, Much More With Less. I'd like to welcome Faith Archer. Faith, very warm welcome to you. Glad to be here. So why don't we start with your broad thoughts on the latest budget and what the Chancellor has done with, um, you know, new rounds of tax allowances. Well, it's a, it's a sneaky tax rise, isn't it? <laughs> Richard Sunak somehow, he's got to plug this enormous £400 billion hole in the public finances. So it, it's a bit of a boiling frog moment, isn't it? Rather than whacking loads of tax rises on right now, he's mm. freezing allowances from April 6th for five years that will gradually thanks to salary rises and inflation, drag more and more people into paying tax. I've seen estimates that um, because of freezing the personal allowance, the amount that you can earn tax-free every year before paying income tax, um, 1.3 million more people will start paying income tax by 2026, and a million more people will be pushed up from being basic rate taxpayers to higher rate taxpayers. Gosh, that's really interesting, isn't it? Okay, so now there's never been a better time, really, to know about your different allowances. So let's start then with the obvious ones, which are your ISA and pension allowances. What are these wrappers shelter you from and what are the limits? ISA and pensions, they are absolutely brilliant for allowing you to set money aside every year where it can grow untouched by the tax map. So um, the main kind of ISAs, if you want to save or invest, you can set aside £20,000 every year and you will not have to pay any income tax on dividends or interest, nor will you pay capital gains tax on the growth. Same applies for pensions where you can stash away. Most people can stash away up to 100% of earnings each year, capped to a maximum of £40,000. And with pensions, you can get additional free money on top uh, because the government will give you tax relief at your highest rate of income tax, making them particularly attractive to higher rate and additional rate taxpayers. And if you're paying in a work pension, you can get free money for your employer as employer contributions as well. So already we can see that those tax wrappers uh, offer quite generous benefits and people should definitely use those up. But outside of those wrappers, the very taxes that you've mentioned, the three taxes that you've mentioned that they're sheltering you from, also have allowances. Am I right? That's true. So, for example, cash uh, individual savings accounts, cash ISAs became less attractive once people could earn interest tax free just on ordinary um, savings accounts. Um, if you're a basic rate taxpayer, you're allowed to earn a thousand pounds a year in interest under the personal savings allowance, and even higher rate taxpayers can earn five hundred pounds a year. And given how low interest rates are right now, you can have a fair amount of cash and earn piddly interest rate on it before you've got to worry about income tax. Um, when it comes to dividends, um, you're allowed to earn two thousand pounds a year tax-free in dividends. Um, and capital gains tax. So this is relevant if there is growth on your investments, so the share prices go up, um, you can set aside £12,300 before the tax man comes calling. Gosh, that's quite that's quite a big chunky amount for capital gain. That's one reason why if you are in a fortunate position of um, kind of almost having money over after filling ISAs and pensions, um, if you're kind of trying to work out which kind of investment to put where um, because the dividend allowance is only £2,000 it's worth uh, prioritising dividend producing investments within a stocks and shares ISA um, because the capital gains tax allowance on, on growth um, funds and shares uh, you, you can kind of you can 
leave those on balance leave those out of the ISA because your allowance is so generous each year for capital gains tax just make sure that you then have the discipline to to go and do a bit of rejigging each year uh, selling stuff taking the gains within the allowance okay brilliant so then what about tax on income then what, what's your what's your standard allowances for that Personal allowance right now is £12,500. That's going up to £12,570 from April the 6th. And that's the amount that most people can earn before they start paying any income tax at all. Um, High earners, not quite so attractive. Once you earn more than £100,000 a year, the taxman will start taking away £1 in personal allowance for every extra £2 in income. Okay. And then what about to do with your home as an asset? There's a few different allowances here. Yes, you can earn money both kind of almost working from home and from your home itself. Um, so if you do a little bit of buying and selling on eBay, um, there's something called the trading allowance. So you can earn a thousand pounds a year before you pay any income tax on that. Um, can be useful, as I said, if you're selling your belongings or even if you're starting up a business because you don't formally have to register as self-employed and file a tax return until you earn over a thousand pounds a year. Um, in terms of making money out of your home itself, um there's a similar property allowance also a thousand pounds so that might be really helpful if you let your home occasionally for airbnb or maybe you let your garage for storage um your driveway as a parking space um if you want to go the whole hog though there is actually a more generous seven thousand five hundred pounds a year of rent a room allowance um but that is specifically if you have a flatmate or lodger you're letting a furnished room in your own home you can't use the rent a room allowance for example if you have a holiday cottage that you let out that's right and actually i it's one of those um allowances i actually use i rent out one of my rooms um uh, to someone and, and make the most of that um okay brilliant and finally then your salary sacrifice. Can you explain this and how this is kind of a neat way of saving some pennies? The way salary sacrifice works is that you have a formal arrangement with your employer. It's actually written into your contract. So that you give up part of your salary in exchange for certain things. Um, so you might use salary sacrifice to pay for um, childcare vouchers, cycle to work, you know, pension contributions, company cars, training, home technology, extra holidays, all these kind of benefits are slightly work related. Now, here's the advantage. Because you agree to give up part of your salary, it means that you save on income tax and um, national insurance contributions on that money. And it may be that your employer can save on employer's national insurance contributions too. So there is a saving to both of you in having it kind of almost sacrificing that part of your salary. Thing, the thing to be aware of, though, is if you do do salary sacrifice, it means that your headline salary is lower. And it means that when calculating things like maternity allowance, for example, or redundancy pay, that's the, the lower figure will be the one that's used. Faith Archer, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Well, I hope you enjoyed that rather quick hop through those different tax breaks. Simon, what did you think? Yeah, well, she made some very interesting points, as she always does. I mean, pensions first. You know, this idea that essentially you're you're borrowing a bit of money from the government because effectively, when you come to draw your pension, you're going to have to pay income tax on some of that money. One point here is if you happen to be in a lower tax band, and many people are, when they draw their pension, then when they were contributing to the pension, you're actually going to pay less tax back uh, than you've borrowed. It's also worth noting um, that you can, of course, take 25% of your pension pot tax-free, and that can be spread out over time. It's not just in one uh, lump sum. 
I think the other thing she mentioned that I thought was interesting was around uh, cash ISAs. Yes, they have become uh, much less attractive. But, you know, of course, to earn the £1,000 in interest on cash before you get taxed, you need quarter of a million pounds in cash. Let's assume you're earning 0.4%, which is about the best you can get out there. You still need quarter of a million pounds to earn that £1,000 before you start getting uh, taxed. I suppose... I suppose the only the only um, problem is is that if if interest rates rise, correct, then suddenly you could find yourself falling foul of that that limit on savings. Yes, that's true. That's absolutely true. I mean, it's anything over a thousand pounds. So um, you know, if if, if uh, banks and bills decide to start paying uh, more, then correspondingly, you'd need to save less to get that same amount of money. Um, and final point, I was going to say uh, worth considering. Uh, uh, around ISIS, stocks and shares ISIS, is charges because if your capital gains and your dividend income is pretty small, it is possible for the charges to outweigh the benefits. That being said, you can get some pretty cheap stocks and shares ISIS out there. I mean, you know, £40 a year uh, in an admin charge on a £20,000 ISA is about uh, where the market is at. Um, of course, the other thing to note is if you start investing outside of an ISA, um, and want then later down the line to take advantage of ISA benefits, you can't generally transfer investments outside an ISA into an ISA later on. Basically, you'd have to sell them and then buy them back, which gets much, much more expensive. Okay, well, let's move on a little bit now and look at investments for putting in an ISA. Earlier, Marcus spoke to Cherry Reynard about offbeat investments that you might not have considered before. So part of what we're hoping to do with the Get Investing magazine is to provide you with plenty of ideas for your ISA at tax year end. And what we've been noticing the professional investors have been saying is that there's some really interesting investment opportunities in more unusual parts of the market for various reasons, which could provide you with all sorts of benefits to your portfolio. Discussing this in the mag is our returning award-winning journalist, Cherry Reynard. So she's here with me today to chat through what she found. Cherry, a very warm welcome to you. Hello. Cherry, let's start with broadly, why is it that private investors should consider more of these niche ideas for their ISA then? Well, I think there are two elements there. There are lots of traditional areas are looking quite unappealing. So if you take something like fixed income, that's commonly paying almost no income. And you're not gonna get a lot of capital growth either. Um, so that's not great. Then you've got areas like commercial property. And um, well, that's a bit up in the air. So you've got high street retail, for example, which is under pressure from e-commerce. Um, nobody's quite sure what's happening in the office market. Industrials are strong, but prices are high. So, you know, there's problems there. Um, then you've got equity markets, which are which are kind of in flux. Um, they're, they're seeing this change between the rotation from tech stocks moving into more sort of economically sensitive names. Um, so nobody's quite sure where they are in that. They also had a very strong run in 2020, so valuations are looking higher. So these alternatives kind of offer something new and something different to a portfolio where um, you can still get income, uh, you can still get capital growth, uh, where valuations might not be so extended. It's also worth saying that there's been a lot of new launches in this area. So fund managers have got quite good at sort of packaging up 
interesting new areas and and in a format that's now available to normal investors like you and me. Mm, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think when you consider that some of the predictions about the returns on assets show that, yeah, mainstream assets may not quite produce what they did as, as, as they have in the recent past in the last decade, say. And that's part of the reason why the big trade body for most of the funds in the UK, the Investment Association, is encouraging fund managers to launch these products in these more unusual areas. So that definitely point, points to that. And I think they're just interesting, aren't they? I mean, they tend to be in areas that the, the man on the street tends to have heard of more of, um, you know, when it comes to things like solar power or infrastructure, certain things, they just are a bit more familiar with them, I, I think. Yeah, and I think there's a certain, uh, it's, it's a bit more fun in a way. It's, it, to know you're investing in a solar farm and something that's doing some kind of tangible good is a bit more interesting than a boring old oil company or that kind of thing. Well, you mentioned doing good there. Um, this segues nicely into the first of your categories, which is the doing good category, as you, as you call it, which is really referring to sustainable investments. So ESG, impact investing and the like. Why, why have you selected this particular area? Well, this has been this has been a really exciting area in 2020. And actually, that, that should slightly give a caveat that um, it's done really, really well and it it's not always the best time to invest when some things have done really well. Never, in spite of that, there is huge momentum behind the sector. So investors have started to realize that if they are recycling their egg boxes and um, that sort of thing, then you don't want to be messing it up with your investment portfolio. Um, so there's been this, um, as I said, huge momentum behind ESG sustainable type investments and there's been a lot of new products launched as well so things focused on energy transition on the circular economy all these exciting new areas I'd highlight two main areas some are quite kind of bond-like and would actually make a, a natural replacement for something like commercial property in a portfolio so um, you get solar or wind farms and you're getting what you're getting from those is quite a steady income and um, sort of long term capital growth. You're not it's it's not sexy. It's not really exciting. But a you know, you're doing good because you're investing in, in renewables um, and also yeah, I, investing for an income is quite good. And it's quite a good idea and a nice portfolio um, because the income's tax free. The, the, big player in that is is green coat so green coat renewables and green coat wind i think is the is the other main one the other option are these sort of more exciting equity based products in specialist areas so energy transition renewable energy also energy efficiency or recycling those kind of areas you can get those in active funds and you can get those in etf format the other one that's quite interesting is our impact funds. So these are specifically targeted, not just for a financial return, but also for a specific sort of sustainability return. So that might be something like carbon emissions or pollution levels. So investors, as well as being able to see um, 
their financial return and, and how much they've made, they can see the good they've done. And I think more and more this is, these kind of metrics are gonna be adopted by the industry, by the, by the fund industry. But I think in the meantime, you've got some really good fund managers now launching impact funds. So people like Bailey Gifford and MG. Um, and I think those are really interesting. They're really sort of exciting. We've certainly seen BlackRock launch some now enormous passive ETFs and 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 funds in in that space in 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 the ESG space. Do you think do you think these are good or do you think the way to go is active management? Um, I think I'm naturally inclined towards active management simply because some of the some of the ETFs, and it's, it's by no means all of them, but some of the passive funds, they just have a little tilt. So they will overweight companies. So a company that scores badly on their ESG metrics, um, they'll put a little bit less in that. And a company that scores highly, they'll have a little bit more in that. But you're still getting the company that's... Um, that's not scoring very highly. And I think I'd rather, I mean, and this is a personal preference, but I think I'd rather have something that's a bit punchier. Yeah, and lots of, lots of these companies have big engagement programs with, um, with the companies themselves. So they will be right up there with BP at the AGM saying, I want to see what you're doing in renewables. And, some of that is really effective and you know it needs to be done um but personally yeah if i was if i was going to invest with that mindset i'd 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 rather do something a bit more sort of focused and um and impactful okay moving on your next section has a look at early stage financing and you're focusing on private investing we actually had a guest on the podcast nick britain from the um aic the uh, the Association of Investment Companies, talking about venture capital trusts, which I think are even earlier as well and a bit more complex and difficult to get into. Private equity is an easier thing to get into, mm. isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And there's there's plenty of dedicated private equity trusts, but also if you look at high sort of global growth trusts uh, like Scottish Mortgage, they will have a private equity portion so you can get access through those as well you can get sort of selected access through those as well and I think what's important here is that more and more of the most exciting companies on the market are staying in private hands for longer so if you look at companies like Airbnb and Uber they're much much bigger in the private market than they would ever have been I don't know a decade ago and the pipeline of IPOs in the UK, you've got things like Deliveroo and TransferWise and Monzo. I mean, they're some of the most exciting companies available. And if you can get them in the private market, you can get all that sort of lovely early growth and then sort of follow them through their, their journey. I, th I just think it's a, it's, a, it's a great area. It's sort of what investing's all about really it's about giving capital to really good growing companies yes and I think it's interesting you know I was looking at data from Aberdeen Standard and 
if you look at the period between 1996 and 2018, the number of US public listed companies halves. And, and that's a sign of our times, really, isn't it? It's not that there aren't lots of great companies around. I mean, look at the economy, it's growing. It's that mm. more and more of them just think, oh, you know, I can't really be bothered with all the listing rules and, and the quarterly reports and everything that goes with public listing for the moment. Whilst we're in our earliest stages, while we're just focusing on growth and we don't want to focus on our shareholders, let's remain private, right? Yeah, I think there's a... Um, also, public markets demand quarterly reporting um, and there's a lot around that. So I think you can get slightly false incentives you know, management teams can uh, kind of manage the quarterly numbers, which is not great if you're a sort of earlier stage growing business. And yeah, so I, th I think the private market can be better in those early stages as as people find their, you know, find their pace. Especially if they're testing more unusual things it's and unusual business models, you can and it, which may not necessarily fare very well with an investor, you know, it, it kind of, um, it gives them that freedom, I suppose. Yeah, absolutely. I think public markets can be quite conservative, uh, small C conservative and, and quite demanding in, in a way that's not necessarily useful uh, for a company in its early stages. Okay, so let's get on to the, the final two categories, which really fall into this kind of broad group of real assets that are investments that are based on physical things, you know, tangible things like properties and bridges and, and what have you. And this is I mean, interesting me that you mentioned these two, two areas of, of real assets, really, because we had a guest, Ben Seeger-Scott, uh, a, a professional fund selector who was talking about some of the opportunities in real assets due to the potential for inflation coming through and the fact that those assets tend to do well according to what history tells us in that sort of environment. And you start with less conventional property. Why, why are you thinking about less conventional property over more conventional property, I suppose? Um, well, conventional commercial property funds used to be a, a real staple of the ISA season, you know, stable income, uh, stable capital values, um, they they were diversified from bonds and equities, so they were they were generally a good choice. But they have just had a horrible time. So there are three basic elements to commercial property funds: retail, office, and industrial. Retail has been pretty horrible because you've had all the switch to e-commerce, and they're they're on the wrong side of this structural change. Offices are now up in the air thanks to the pandemic and are any of us going back to the office? Well, nobody quite knows, but it's probably going to look a little bit different. Industrial has been quite strong, but prices are now pretty high and income doesn't look very attractive. So this, this one sort of safe and stable asset class doesn't look so great anymore. So we're looking at sort of alternative options, which, which have similar characteristics, you know, that stable income, stable capital growth, but, but a slightly different. So areas such as infrastructure, which is everything from toll bridges and hospitals to sort of new infrastructure, like green infrastructure or um, data centers and that kind of thing. So it's, actually, it's actually a very broad 
asset class and um, and can be quite diversified. So, but that's been a bit more stable in 2020. Uh, the rental or the, the income has been very stable and the capital values have, have been good too. The income tends to be inflation adjusted, which is handy if we're going into climate of higher inflation, which, which we could well be. And the income is also often government backed. So unless the UK government goes bust, um, which we hope it won't, you, uh, investors should get their should get their yield. There are other interesting um, alternative property options in the investment trust market. Things like doctors' surgeries, pharmacies, social housing options. You know, the latter is particularly interesting. I mean, that provides housing for disabled and disadvantaged people. Again, it's it, they tend to be government-backed um, income, and and investors also have the sort of warm and fuzzy sense that they're, they're doing something good with their money as well. So it's it's the the social element of ESG. So I think there's some there's some really interesting opportunities there that can keep property in a portfolio, but in a slightly different format. Mm, yeah, I certainly never knew about doctors' surgeries, and I think it's an interesting point as well you make about commercial property like offices. I mean, you know, what will happen? when when we are let back and people now know that they can do remote working so you know do they need to be in the office five days a week therefore if it's only four how much do we need the same amount of space can we rejig it around so that you know because we'll have fewer people in in any one average day uh, it will be interesting to see what that that does to the overall you know, commercial yes office. i think there um i think there might be an element of uh, sort of FOMO that comes that comes back into office work as you see um, your colleague who's in the office with your boss and and you're <laughs> you're at home not getting your kind of FaceTime. But but I do but I do think the office is obviously going to change. I, I think um, when I talk to property fund managers, they they believe that it 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 will be there, but it'll it'll it's going to be different and and going back to a nine to five commuting for an hour every day just isn't really going to happen. And then finally, I just want to draw you to commodities then, which you, you, you talk about in your final section. You meant you reckon that they're, they're, they could be poised for a bit of a super cycle. What do you mean by this? <laughs> now, I, I have to caveat this with the fact that I think I've lost, personally, I think I've lost more money <laughs> trying to trying to bet on commodities than uh, than anything else. However, with that in mind, I do think there are quite exciting elements in place for commodities at the moment. So, a there's the inflation element. So, commodities tend to do well at times of a economic expansion and b when inflation is high. Then there is this huge infrastructure development. So. The transition to renewable energy is creating huge demand for green infrastructure and slightly perversely it, it creates real demand for metals so like lithium for the batteries in electric cars it's very intensive in renewables are very intensive in terms of copper demand so all these elements have to be mined got out of the ground and at the moment, there's a real supply shortage because obviously the mines have been shut. So this is putting real pressure on the sort of supply and demand dynamic. Prices have 
soared in 2020, but often the prices for the mining companies haven't kept pace. So it, it's as if the owners of the mining companies haven't, haven't quite caught up to the commodity price rises. So that's where I'm thinking that the commodity demand will come from. But again, I have been wrong on this before. <laughs> so I suppose because the the way that miners should be, they should respond to the higher prices and then that they should become more profitable. And therefore, then eventually their share prices should grow through their increased earnings. Yes. Yeah, so technically, I mean, there are variations, but it should cost them roughly the same amount to get the stuff out of the ground. And then if they can sell it at a higher price, it, you know, that feeds straight into their bottom line. And you're seeing that in, 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 in the profitability of mining companies. You're just, it just hasn't really been reflected in share prices. I think because investors always have a slight, they're always looking backwards to the last crisis and miners had a horrible time in, in the last crisis, you know, about a, a decade ago. And I think that sort of worry always lingers. It's, it's a bit like, you know, the banking sector sold off during this crisis, in, in spite of the fact it wasn't a banking crisis. Yeah, that's a very good point, Cherry. I mean, sometimes, you know, memories can be quite long in stock markets. I think investors shun tech stocks, for example, for quite a while after the dot-com bubble burst. I think it, it took something like 15 years for the NASDAQ, the tech-heavy NASDAQ, to, to get back to its, its former peak. Cherry Reynard, thank you very much. Great. No, thank you. Now, I thought that was really interesting stuff from Cherry there. Simon, what did you think of, of what she had to say? Well, I mean, there's loads of interesting stuff in there, isn't there? I mean, impact investing is, is fascinating, isn't it? You know, it's a part of that whole sphere of kind of ESG. But I, li I love this idea that you can measure not only the financial return uh, from an investment, uh, but also the good that you've done. You know, it really means that people are just, they're just not in it for the money. You know, they're in it for some sort of societal good and to, you know, improve the world for the people that will follow us. I think that's a, a fantastic uh, thing. Um, the only other thing I was going to say was around this uh, issue she's mentioned around uh, trying to pursue an ESG strategy in an exchange-traded fund. And I, all I would do is echo the remarks Cherry made about this idea of kind of up-weighting and, and down-weighting. For me, it's it's just not enough. You know, these portfolios aren't focused enough. And I'm quite frankly fed up of seeing Apple as the top 10 holding in ESG ETFs because, you know, let's face it, its tax practices are being questioned. The amount of mining that's involved in order to make the, the stuff that goes in our phones and tablets, it's not what you'd call small. I don't know that it would pass an ESG filter in any other way. But um, yeah, I, no, f fascinating stuff. Yeah, the impact investing thing we've obviously spoken about a little bit on the pod. In fact, we spoke to Ben Constable Maxwell from M&G in a previous episode. So please check that out if you want to learn more about it, because M&G was one of the names that Cherry threw out there as a heavyweight in this space. I think the last thing I would say as well, just on commodities, I'm intrigued by this commodity super cycle. So are our listeners. We had one listener, Peter, who got in contact and said he'd like us to have a look at that. So we're going to do that in a future episode. And of course, provide you lots of juicy investment options as well. 
And if there's any other further requests, please don't hesitate to get in contact. I am Marcus at StepsToInvesting.com. And mine is Simon at StepsToInvesting.com. Okay, well, that rounds off the show for another week. Thank you to Cherry and to Faith. Thank you for listening. Join us again next week when we talk to Tom Selby from platform AJ Bell, one of the big ones out there, about pensions. Until then, it's goodbye from us. Goodbye. <laughs>